Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, we talk to education leader and author Ian Rowe about why we need to replace our obsession with so-called equity with the empowering concept of agency. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are recording on July 21st, 2022. Per usual, I am in Phoenix, Arizona, and I am thrilled to have as our guest Ian Rowe, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, charter school entrepreneur and executive, and author, most recently, of a wonderful book titled Agency, The Four-Point Plan for All Children to Overcome the Victimhood Narrative and discover their pathway to power. At AEI, Mr. Rowe focuses on education and upward mobility, family formation and adoption. Outside the AEI sphere, he is the co-founder of Vertex Partnership Academies, a new network of character-based high schools that uh, opens in the Bronx this year, or maybe has opened already. We'll ask Mr. Rowe about that. He is the chairman of the board of Spence Chapin, a nonprofit adoption services organization. He is the co-founder of the National Summer School Initiative, and he also serves as a senior visiting fellow at the Woodson Center. Until July 2020, Mr. Rowe was for 10 years the CEO of Public Prep, a high-performing network of public charter schools based in the South Bronx and Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, He has been widely published in the popular press, including in the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Examiner. You'll see him on TV sometimes. He has an MBA from Harvard Business School, where he was the first black editor-in-chief of The Harvest the Harvard Business School newspaper, and for good measure, also has a BS in computer science engineering from Cornell University. All those, all those easy majors. Uh, <laughs> other than that, he hasn't done much. Uh, Ian Rowe, welcome. Wow, I I'm exhausted just listening to all of that. <laughs> it reminds you of all the work you've done in your life. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank well, you for saying, me on. I'm you were saying before we got on air that you were. Um, a typical uh, Jamaican uh, that you had so many jobs. Ah, uh, yes, uh, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> well, tell me no, about no, it. it, it it's a reference. Well, there, there is the stereotype, but uh, many years ago, there was a, a, a great show called In Living Color, and um, it was a, a skit series. I think, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, careers were launched off that show. But anyway, there was a there was a skit about the traditional Jamaican family, and there's this one famous skit where this. When the uh, 17-year-old uh, Jamaican son, he comes home, he's so tired, and he sees his mom. He's like, oh, my God, mom, mom, I'm so tired. My, my seven jobs, my seven jobs. And the mom says, what? You only have seven jobs? You must have 10 jobs. <laughs> <laughs> it's, something that's, it's something that's always, uh, I've always thought funny. But anyway, I feel like I'm living through that now where I, I feel like, multiple hats, but, but to some degree, they're all pointed in the same direction, which is, you know, how do we create better environments uh, for young people to flourish? You know, so they're all connected in one way or the other. Absolutely. Well, um, let's start with Jamaica, if you don't mind. And just so people know about your background, you're the son of Jamaican uh, immigrants who came to America in 1968, if I have that right. Perhaps you can just talk a little bit about that, why your parents came here, um, what their attitude was toward the U.S., how they how they raised you, and how it kind of has contributed to where you are today. Yeah, you know, like like most of us, um, how you know our interaction with our parents was you know the number one shaper of our lives. And my parents, you know, they're both from Jamaica. Met um, you know when they were young and and courted. You know, I always love the stories my mom used to tell about how dad used to pick her up on horseback in the country for their dates, you know, it's really romantic. They called each other buds. And, uh, and, uh, ultimately my dad actually really wanted to study engineering. Um, so he went at the time, Jamaica was an English Commonwealth. Um, um, uh, Jamaica, yeah, Jamaica was a Commonwealth of, of England. So he went to England to school and, uh, they had been dating. And so, and 
um, he uh, he wrote to my, my mom's parents for her hand in marriage and uh, quite some consternation in the Sivrite household. And, they, you know, they, they ultimately gave permission and she took a 5,000 mile journey on a ship all by herself to to go to to be with him and they got married in england and uh they finished their schooling and you know quite a quite a life and they had my brother and then seven years later they had me and uh and that's when they began the adventure of their life that they um they decided to come to the united states and you said it in the late 1960s and 68 you know so there's a lot going on in our country at the time a lot of racial strife. So they, you know, they, as a black family, they were coming in quite um, clear on what they were entering. Um, but they also, you know, they, they, even though there was racial strife, they also felt there was a lot of opportunity, um, even for a black family. And, you know, the Civil Rights Act, Act, Civil Rights Act had passed, the Voting Rights Act, and this idea that the country was changing, that opportunity was there. So, we came, we moved to Brooklyn, um, and then uh, my dad actually um, was one of the first black engineers at IBM. Um, mom worked at, um, some of your older listeners might know, uh, Manufacturers Hanover Trust, otherwise known as Manny Hanny. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, they built a life. And, you know, I, I had some very early experiences that they shaped my vision of the world and how I could become what I call an agent of my own uplift. But yeah, from the very beginning, they came to the United States with a strong sense of family, strong sense of faith, strong sense of education was crucial, even in the face of racism and other challenges that they knew were inevitable. Your dad, you you say in your book that your your dad told you uh, once that he had always been a man, but he hadn't been a black man until he came to America. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was... I was, you know, I remember when he told me those stories, like, and he, he said it with, you know, this sort of, this sort of kind of weird, because he, my dad always just felt race was just strange topic in, in this country where, you know, here he is, he grew up in a country where virtually everyone was black. And the only real differences was kind of shades of darkness, but, but your race was not your determining factor. Like your, you know, how much effort you put into a particular, um, uh, task or, you know, how athletic you were, or just, there were other, other, um, factors around which you competed, but race wasn't the thing. So you could just be a man, you know, the, the, yeah, like there was, there was no prefix. Um, but as he said, it wasn't until he came to the United States that suddenly he was a black man and that had all sorts of meaning because as a black man, that meant you were, you know, more likely to do a lot of negative things. And, and that's really where he, he, it wasn't just that he was a black man. It was that being a black man had a lot of negative connotations. And frankly, he did not want me to adopt that kind of mindset um, when he really started to understand what the implications were if someone were to internalize what it would mean to be a black man with all these kind of characteristics or imposed imposed meanings and this allows us to get in i think to the main uh uh, theme of this conversation which is about your main theme agency um it it seems that tell me again if i have this wrong but that he was expected to act in a certain way as a black man both by white people and by black people sort of Sort of uh, removing agency from him, you know, his his race determined his fate, as you said. He didn't have the agency, or wasn't supposed to exercise that agency uh, uh, in a way that was inconsistent with how he was supposed to act according to um, those yeah. around him. Yeah, there's this thing about authenticity of being black, and, and you know, I write agency not just as a book for black kids because I think agency right. is a phenomenon that I think a lot of kids across race, across class are not feeling that they have a sense of control over their own lives or the ability to lead a self-determined life. But I use examples, a lot of different examples, and, and here clearly is an example of race where you were not an authentic black person if, um, if you aspire to do well in academics or if you were a really responsible father. And the thing that always 
troubled my dad was the things that were authentically black was someone in prison or someone who didn't speak well or someone who, you know, wore saggy clothes or just someone who, you know, wasn't really into school like those. And he just, it, honestly, it, it kind of bewildered him. Right. Like, where did that come from? <laughs> right. I imagine for a Jamaican immigrant, that must have been bewildering. Um, well, um, we're di- well, <laughs> we won't get into where it did come from. So that might take us too far away from the main <laughs> thread here. But um, to get back to what you were saying about uh, many young people of all races and ethnicities not feeling like they have much control over their future, I'm going to quote a statistic to you that you provide in the agency. Um, from this is from the Archbridge Institute, yeah. a think tank that I had not heard of actually. Thirty-nine um, percent uh, of Americans under age 25, American adults under age 25, think they have the power to live a meaningful life. Only 39% compared to 63% of all American adults, which must mean if you get beyond 25, it must be 60, yeah, the high 60%. I mean, it's an incredible gap. You know, what has happened in the human universe to make people under the age of 25, a majority of them in America, think they can't, don't have the power to live a meaningful life. Well, that's why I've written this book, because it, it's even more tragic that, you know, it's it literally young people, 24 and under, I think it's literally 15 to 24, have this sense, have less than half the belief in the leading a meaningful life than older Americans. Um, and it's ironic because younger Americans have access to incredible technological innovations. You just think about the power that they have in their hands in these these mobile devices, you know, the New York Times just had an incredible story on their front page a couple of weeks ago about a young woman in Mexico that was born with a deformed ear um, uh, on her left side. And it, it wasn't functional. It was very uns- unsightly. And it was just this terrible phenomenon in her life. And yet these scientists were able to use a 3D printer to, they, they were able to capture her DNA cells and then used a 3D printer to literally struct an ear in the exact shape of her right ear, and they appended it to her left ear, and now she has a completely functioning ear <laughs> that is that's not rejected because it's her DNA cells. I mean, it's a kind of technological innovation that's it's like the equivalent of you know going to the moon or or these ideas. And one would think, growing up in an era where you know, I just went to a presentation the other day where 3D printers are now using to build houses and they're, they're developing in such a way that we could, could build a colony on, on the moon and Mars. And, right. and yet, with all these ideas, when you, when you look at data on young people today, high levels of loneliness, depression, alienation. And so there is a spiritual thirst. There's a thirst. And that's why I've written this book, because I feel like young people are being trapped in these narratives. Right. They're telling them everything they can't do in their lives, and we have to create an empowering alternative. I, it's not often that I quote Jean-Jacques Rousseau favorably, but I'll, uh, man was born free and he is everywhere in chains, is the quote that came to mind oh, <laughs> as you were speaking. Yes. Um, because it's, it's sort of these invis- invisible chains that, as you said, these, narr- these entrapping narratives that seem to be responsible for this sense of lack of agency. Um, you, you talk about equity versus agency, the concept of equity as um, one that um, perhaps unintentionally seems to deprive people of a sense of agency. Is that, is that right? How would you contrast those two concepts? Yeah. Well, you know, one, one of the things you mentioned is I went to Harvard business school, you know, many, many moons ago. And um, when we, when the, when the term equity, was used at Harvard Business School. It mm-hmm. was, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a very favorable term, right? It meant that you had the opportunity to have ownership in an enterprise of unlimited potential, right? Oh my God, you could have equity in Google or this company or this opportunity. It meant growth and unlimited possibilities. Fast forward to today, equity means something very, very different. It mean it's much more about um, creating equal outcomes or, uh, or addressing inequity in such a way that we have 
equal outcomes between certain identity groups. It's almost like a zero-sum game. So rather than this sense of we can do anything, it's uh, it's boundless in possibility. It's like no, 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 no. We've got to we've got to um, sort of create these equal uh, sets of results. And uh, and and unless you have equal sets of results amongst different identity groups, then something is fundamentally wrong. And in fact, not only are things fundamentally wrong, like for example, if you see different outcomes between people of different races then those differences must be due to racism within those groups. And so therefore you have a whole set of solutions. Agency looks at the world in a very different way. Agency is focused on this idea of boundless potential within each individual. And the question is, how do we cultivate a society in which each individual is actually getting access to the institutions that helps shape their moral character. That is the that is in many ways my foundation for my definition of agency. Yeah, you. Uh, I'm going to butcher it, but agency is sort of um, uh, it, it's it's free will plus moral discernment or something like yes. that. Is that yes. right? Your definition. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah, because I, you know, as I said before, these narratives that I think young people are hearing, I, you know, very. Quickly, I put them into the categories of blame the system and blame the victim. Yeah, go into that. That's because you you talk a lot about that distinct. These two false competing visions. Yeah, well, the the this idea that you know if if you're not achieving the American dream, then it's because America itself is flawed. It's an oppressive, racist nation, or based on your gender, systems are rigged against you. You know. There's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Capitalism itself is evil. And just this whole idea that all these systems in America are just essentially designed for your destruction um, based on immutable characteristics that you've got no control over. And you're basically helpless unless there's like massive, for example, a reparations program for you know trillions of dollars or critical race theory. Some of these ideas that just say, well, America is just imbued with racism and other uh, factors that are designed to keep you down. That's blame the system. And obviously that's a very debilitating message. But then on the other side, you've got what I call blame the victim, where again, if you're not successful in America, it's not because America is a problem. America is great. America is the land of opportunity. No, you're not successful because it's your fault. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You are the architect of your own failure. And of course, that narrative, I think, is debilitating because it ignores what happens if a young person is born into an unstable family or doesn't have a strong faith commitment or doesn't have access to great schools. It's really hard to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps when you don't have those kinds of institutional supports from the very early days. So agency, the way I've defined it, is my third way, my empowering alternative, my new idea. Well, in some ways, it's not a new idea, but I'm trying to reanimate. Um, but I have put this definition of agency is the force of your free will guided by moral discernment the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So think of agency as a vector or velocity, where velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction, right? So, you know, every human being has free will, but there are a lot of people that exercise that free will for not good deeds, right? So where does the ability to be morally discerning come from? And that's where I do introduce my free framework. Family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. Yeah, I don't want you to spill the beans on it yet. For, oh, okay. For building up to free, but I'm glad you introduced it now and teased it because I want to spend the second half of our conversation just here in a second talking about that. That's it's it's very good. Um, before we get off this, I want to linger just for a second on the um, blame the victim uh, narrative and the blame the system narrative. Yeah. Um, it, it it strikes me that. The blame the system narrative is obviously the preferred narrative of our elites. Uh, it, it's the one that our prestige institutions and organizations um, uh, uh, trumpet on a on a minute by minute. 
basis and no, nobody's blaming the victim among them unless it's like a maybe a white working class man in West Virginia or something that, that right. they, they blamed. Um, blame the victim is is still uh, probably to a surprising degree uh, probably is a pr- the preferred narrative of um, the lower and working classes, I would say. You know, is that – I mean there's there's a sort of class difference here in like, which narrative do you prefer to um, – uh, which false narrative do you prefer? Do you, yeah. do you think I'm onto something there? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's an interesting thing because, yeah, as you say, blame the system is more easily detectable. You know, you, you've got these, you've got, it's particularly around race, you've got the Abraham Kendi's at the world, Robin DeAngelis, who are just constantly on the point that America is this racist nation. But, you know, blame the system is, it's capitalism, it's all these things. Blame the victim is interesting because the 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 accusations are against people in some ways who aren't necessarily blaming the victim. But if you're not uh, solely blaming the system, then you're going to be um, accused of blaming the system. Right. right? So, for example, like um, Angela Duckworth, who's mm-hmm. a phenomenal author, she wrote a book called Grit, right? Which is all about, you know, having determination, like stick to and perseverance. Well, a lot of people have blamed her for blaming the victim because right. they say, wait a minute, you can't grit your way out of, you know, the, the heart of the South Bronx or some other community where it's really tough and, and, and not acknowledging, which is what I try to do, the other forces that have to be in place to help a kid emerge from these kinds of tough circumstances so yeah so blame the victim and and i think the charges are usually leveled more at more center right people who talk about personal responsibility and of course it is important personal responsibility is always a component of a pathway to success but if you only focus on that to the point where you give the impression that a young person's just got to figure it out on their own Right. That's where I that's where my line is crossed. And we have to recognize that agency is individually practiced but socially empowered. That's really well put. Uh, that's really good. I remember you writing that in the book or somewhere. And that's well done. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I like no, individually, it, individually practiced but socially empowered. That's fantastic. That's five words that like makes the point, you know, that it's um that has both dimensions. Yes. Yes. And, and I think that's what I want young people to walk away with that they have within themselves, the tools for self renewal, the tools for self betterment, but they don't have to do it on their own. There are actually institutions that they can embrace regardless of circumstance that can be part of that socially empowering element. Why is the blame the victim narrative so popular, or 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 to put another way, why is the concept of agency so unpopular uh, among yeah our? Well, that's our- a big question because agency suggests a level of responsibility. You know the the thing that's the thing that's sometimes tough about um, being in a quote unquote oppressed group is that when people keep saying, well, it's someone else that's doing this to you, it's kind of easy to fall into that mode, right? It's kind of easy to say, you know what, it's, it's not me, you know? And, and you know, um, I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's a New York Times author and the architect of the, the 1619 Project, you know, which you know, accused America of, you know, false, false founding principles, even the founding of the country was 1619, not 1776. She wrote an 8,000 word essay in the New York Times called What We Are Owed. And again, this is an example of race, but she said, she wrote, quote, it doesn't matter what a black person does. Doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you save. None of those things can overcome 400 years of racialized plundering, unquote. So if a, if a, let's say a teacher who's embraced the 1619 project is like offering up those messages to kids over 
and over and over and over again, after a while, you start to feel, well, yeah, like, what's the point? You know, why? Because if the system's so rigged against me, it's almost like you, it's almost like you have to embrace this, the, the ideology that I'm a victim, because it almost be too frustrating to say that you're keeping the try. And so on one level, that's why I think it is so embraced. But the thing that's frustrating, the thing that's so hypocritical is that Nicole Hannah-Jones, and by the way, more power to her, she did, she's done all of the things I just listed in her own list, right? To lead a quite prosperous life. And again, more power, good for her, because she's recognized that those institutions that she thinks are so, you know, futile for the rest of the black community have worked extremely well for her. And so one of the things I like to call out is what I view as the hypocrisy, particularly from the elites who are not preaching what they practice in their own lives to be successful. We need to call that out. Amen. All right. Well, let's let's go to a break. We'll come right back with Ian Rowe, author of Agency, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And we're going to talk about the free framework when we come back. Happy to be here for Givers, Doers, and Thinkers Reader's Guide. And we're going to discuss a book with my colleague, uh, Kieran Raval, our Chief Solutions Officer here at American Philanthropic. How are you doing, Kieran? I'm great. How are you, Jeremy? I'm great. I'm great. We'll see how this goes. It'll be interesting. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm glad we're doing a book discussion. It's very um, what we do here at Amphil. And you've picked a, a very interesting book that got a lot of play when it came out it's been a while now i guess seven eight years ago uh peter Thiel's book zero to one notes on startups or how to build the future um just a little bit of background people should peter Thiel is the um what paypal founder yeah one of the co-founders of paypal first outside investment in facebook yeah so he's done pretty well there's some other things that he's been involved in um, to say the least. And he's like been involved in some interesting ideas uh, as one adjective to put it, like seasteading and things like that. But this has nothing to do, this book has nothing to do with that stuff, right? Uh, this is a, a business book. Tell us tell us what the argument is uh, that Teal makes in this book. Yeah, so um, it's really captured by the title, Zero to One, right? So it's a, it's a book about entrepreneurship and it comes out of a course he, he taught, I guess. And the argument is that the, the next great business that is built and the next great idea that improves our lives and improves our society is not going to come by copying um, something that already exists or improving incrementally on something that exists. So like even just from the back cover, it says the next Bill Gates will not build an operating system. That's actually a great like encapsulation of Thiel's argument. So it's it's about like innovative thinking that's really like optimistic around like how can we build a better future, and like specifically how can startups do that? Not in some weird um, uh, dystopian sense, I, I don't think, but in actually making the world a better place. Yeah. Um, there's, uh, certainly, I think the background of this is that Teal thinks if I have this correctly, that we have against all the rhetoric that we might hear, we've become a much less innovative nation and innovative people. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then what's the argument about, um, is there an argument about monopoly, how like the, the goal should be to monopolize a particular sector? Is that correct? There is one of his, uh, big arguments in the book is that monopoly is good, um, and competition uh, it kills profits and ultimately kills business, right? So do you want to be Google where you own, like, you know, Google Chrome, I think, controls 60 or 70 or 80% of web browsing traffic. Like, do, that's a monopoly, right? Do you want to be Google in that um, sense? Or, um, I don't know, do, do you want to be, like, uh, Coca-Cola who's competing ruthlessly with Pepsi every day? Yeah. 
Yeah, which is an interesting idea for someone I don't think this is coming from the perspective of a business owner, not from the perspective of a government regulator, right? I assume, or just from a citizen. Um, so tell me what you found most interesting about the book, unique uh, key takeaways for, for you. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a couple of things. One is I, um, I really enjoy applying Teal's thinking both to uh, business and to the nonprofit uh, sector. Um, I think there's there's learnings for both. But a couple of um, key takeaways, in addition to some of the ones we, we just talked about, are like one, he, he has this line that um, he starts uh, his interviews with what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Or he flips that around and says, what valuable company is no one building? And that's kind of the starting point of him getting you to think innovatively. Uh, around going from zero to one, not from sort of one to 1.1 or 1.2, right? So that's an interesting uh, question that that I come back to uh, in my own work a lot. Um, another uh, key takeaway for me is, is uh, he says at one point, you are not a lottery ticket. So you have agency. And this is his kind of positive, optimistic vision around like, hey, think for yourself, don't follow the herd because you're not going to actually find success or solve problems by doing what everyone else is doing or by building incrementally on what everyone else is doing. So um, you're not sort of uh, subject of chance or fate. You actually have agency. You can think for yourself. That's a very empowering message that I think you know, business owners and, and nonprofit leaders can, can take away. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is... Um, he goes through kind of a, a series of uh, equations on the front end, a couple of which I'll pull out is like, um, and, and he, the way he sets us up is this is in juxtaposition to the thinking that comes out of the 08 crash. So his kind of pushback on that conventional wisdom is he says, like, number one, like um, taking risk is good. Have, being bold is good, right? There was a kind of conservatism that came out of the 08 crash. Um, two, he says, having a bad plan is better than than no plan, right? So, <laughs> so don't let the yeah, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, and then third is is he says that um, uh, sales and product both matter, right? So I think there was a thinking that um, really uh, doubled down on product, right? And he says actually sales matters as well. Um, I'd apply that, especially in the nonprofit space, to say. Programs and fundraising matter together. If you think about, in that sense, sales and product as being analogous to fundraising and programs, and we see this in our work, the more the two teams work together, typically you end up with better programs and better fundraising results. Right, right. That's great. And I like the what the question, what valuable company is no one building now? If I were a nonprofit leader or a, philanthrop- uh, a philanthropist or philanthropic officer, that's a great question to ask. Like what valuable nonprofit is no one building now? And maybe even within your nonprofit, what valuable uh, initiative is no one building right now, right? But what valuable program just doesn't seem to be available? I think that, that's a pretty dang good question to um, to start off some good innovative thinking with. It is. And, and I think there's another flavor of that question too, which is like um, – it, is this project organized the right way? I think my my hypothesis is that there are a lot of um, nonprofits out there that actually could be for profits, could be better yeah. organized or better, more effective in what they're trying to achieve by building a business out of it. Um, and actually, I think the flip side is true too. There's actually, I think, an increasingly number of sort of uh, socially aligned or socially conscious businesses that. Yeah. You, you read the pitch and you're sort of like, man, this, this sounds like it might be better as a nonprofit. You might actually be more successful, you know, raising philanthropic funds to, to achieve your end here too. Yeah, it's great. And you can do both. As we know, there are innovative ways a nonprofit can own a business. A nonprofit can simply do business and build a revenue stream from selling things, products and services. That's totally fine. Um, as long as you continue to meet the public support test and, and so forth. Um, but you can also have these kind of sister entities um, that follow the law. Uh, the, yeah, you can go both ways. I think that's a really good point. I remember seeing, like, I remember back in the day, this is 10 years ago now, when places like Slate and the Atlantic were trying to figure out how to survive and we just started asking people for money. 
Um, and people would give them money, <laughs> you know, without just buying a subscription. Uh, but they might have been better off with a supportive a supporting foundation or a sister nonprofit. Anyway, so yeah. I, I like like and where you, your head is. You there. see some interesting uh, overlaps between like the philanthropic space and the startup space when you get into like foundations that are pursuing mission related investments yeah. or program related investments and that sort of thing. So it's it's almost like the lines um, blur a little bit more than than we might think they do. Um, and that might not be a bad thing, you know, at the end of the day. Very good. Awesome. Well, thank you, Karen. The uh, book was, is Peter Thiel's Zero to One, Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. Uh, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks. Okay, we are back and very uh, honored to have with us Mr. Ian Rowe, uh, author of Agency, the four-point plan for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. Also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and as we mentioned earlier on, has five or six other jobs as well. As <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, okay, I made you wait to do this. You, you teased it earlier. But tell us, okay, about your your the framework that you've introduced in this book and in your work to think about how we can instill this concept of agency more thoroughly or or uh, universally. Right. Well, you know, one thing that I um, I've always believed is that you can't you can't lay out a problem. You know, you can't describe you know all these terrible conditions and kids are being you know demoralized and, you know, not having a sense of agency. You can't do that without offering up some kind of solution, right? Ian, without- I, don't, I don't think you've met any of my academic friends. I, uh, I'd like to introduce <laughs> you to some people. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, I kid. Well, no, 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 you're absolutely right. I mean, I, look, you know, I've written this book, but my day job, I run schools. You know, I, I, I've got to put myself on the line, you can't just talk about these things and, you know, shout in the rain. You got to build institutions that embody the very values that you're that you're championing. And do they work? You know, do these ideas work on 149th Street and Third Avenue in the heart of the South Bronx? Do young people listen? Right. So, so you know, I put forth this free framework as the empowering alternative, not just as a a theory, but it's something as I'm, that I'm trying to actually enact in the real world to help young people understand how they can become agents of their own uplift. So free is the framework, right? Family, religion, education, entrepreneurship. So the first F, it's not about the family that you're from. It's about the family that you form. Right. So even if you are born into a very challenging situation, and many of the kids in my schools were, I mean, you know, all sorts of family arrangements and some fantastic, but unfortunately, for the most part, uh, in unstable families was kind of the originating source of a lot of the other issues that our kids faced. But I came across some data that said if a young person just finishes their high school degree, then gets a full-time job of any kind just so they can learn the dignity and discipline of work. And if they have children, marriage first, 97% of millennials who follow that series of decisions avoid poverty. And 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 these are not like, this is not a super high bar. This is called the success sequence, correct? Correct. It seems, it seems achievable. It, you know what, not only is it achievable, It's, 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 these are decisions within the grasp of young people. And so when I learned about this data as part of sort of the anchoring element of F in free for family, I thought, well, of course, why wouldn't we share this information with young people, especially if they're growing up in communities? Like, for example, in the, the, the district where we had our Bronx schools, the non-marital birth rate was 85%. Right. And, and across and across the country in 2020, the non-marital birth rate for women 24 and under. So if a, if a woman 24 and under had a baby in 2020, 72 percent of those 
babies were born outside of marriage. And that's across race. That's, that's not across, that's across race. It was sixty-two percent in the white community, and ninety-two percent in the black community. These numbers are just staggering, yeah. Yeah, right? Just yeah, it's a revolution in family formation over the last fifty years. Correct, correct. And there's tons of data that shows. You know, sometimes you can't do causality, but there is a lot of data that shows a deep correlation between things like poverty, higher crime rates, all sorts of things with these outcomes, particularly 24 and under. And I'm educating kids, you know, in elementary, middle, high school who are going to be making their decisions as they now enter young adulthood, right? So I thought, let's, let's figure out a way to teach this information associated with the success sequence, you know, education, work, marriage, and children. You know, it's not a prescription, but you should know that there are different rewards and consequences associated with different series of life decisions. Well, lo and behold, my gosh, the level of opposition to even bringing this up is staggering. <laughs> you I, explain that. that. Like, what's what's the argument? Uh, I mean, you sort of an infringement love. upon freedom, or, or, or no, what? no, not if no, not even for you can't. You're imposing middle class values to these kids. You'll be insulting them because it's likely that their parents didn't follow this series of decisions, and so you're going to create a dynamic where you're creating a cleave between you know parent and child. And, you know, and I, I, yeah, I was, I was stunned. I, honestly, I was stunned. And what was interesting was that when we went to talk to eighth grade parents to say, you know, even before a class started, we'd say, well, you know, you chose, you know, cause our, all of our schools were lottery, you know, we had 2000 kids in our school, 5,000 on the wait list. And you know, we said, you know, you entered our, you entered the lottery for our schools because you wanted us to not only teach about math and science and reading, but you also wanted us to teach your kids about the habits, the skills, the values that give them the greatest likelihood of success. So guess what? We're going to be teaching this thing called the success sequence, that there's a, there's a set of probabilities, no guarantees, but that if these decisions are made, here's this probability of success. If these decisions are made, here's a lower probability of success, because ultimately it's about the kid making choices. And the feedback we got from parents was, thank God someone is teaching these things to my kids because I wish someone had taught it to me when I was much younger. And so, so that, you know, so that for me, well, that was one of my first lessons in rejecting the gatekeepers. Mm. <laughs> that's a good that's a good lesson for us all, I, I imagine, in many ways. Well, there are a lot of people in our society right now who've anointed themselves to be the spokespersons for the for the less advantaged. You know, they wanna defund the police or they wanna, you know, or they they have they have they have these ideas that somehow they call you, call you Latinx rather than Latino or Latino. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god. Great example. Great example. And but when you speak to the people themselves who are who are really still believing in things like the American dream and still wanting to know what are the institutions that are really going to propel their kids forward, even if they may not have been successful in their own lives, they want that. They still believe it. So who are us? Who are we to deprive kids of the very information that can make the realization of the dream possible? Well put. So you you actually do give uh, very concrete um, ideas for how to um, strengthen the family. Uh, we don't have to go into all of them here, but uh, do you want to pick out one of them? Is maybe we just talk about this one was to declare the reduction in non-marital births to women aged twenty four and under to be a winnable battle, and you choose the um, the really striking decline in teen pregnancy rates that have been achieved over the last, I don't know how many years as sort of a, as an example, this can be done. Yeah. I, I th again, I try to show what's possible by demonstrating what we've already achieved. And it was the case for many years in the United States, we had more than a million teen pregnancies per year. This was a massive problem. It was a bipartisan set of concerns. Most people would agree that a kid at 16 having a child is probably not a good thing for the 16-year-old, 
or the kids, right? And both sides came together. The, the President Clinton actually gave an incredible State of the Union speech, which marked sort of the creation of an organization called the National Campaign to Prevent Teen Pregnancy, had bipartisan support, Hollywood, amazing, amazing, amazing. And you could see over time dramatic reductions in um, uh, teen pregnancy rates amongst 19 and younger probably one of the greatest public health achievements of all time. And one of the things that was done during that whole process is that the U.S. government actually, the, the CDC actually has these things called winnable battles, where we set these goals around smoking or teen pregnancy or other things that we know would significantly help the um, social and physical health of our country. And so one of the things, uh, and, and, all, and in almost all of these, where the government has set a goal, there's usually all sorts of public-private partnerships to, to, um, to achieve that goal. And so one of the recommendations I make is that reducing the non-marital birth rate for women 24 and under should be deemed a winnable goal. The, the numbers are just staggering, as I just, as I just laid out, and unfortunately... For something like a decade, more than 10 years straight, the non-marital birth rate um, for women 24 and under has been north of 70%. You know? and, and of that group of these young, you know, young uh, adults who are having children outside of marriage, close to 40% of those are to women having at least their second child. So you just think about that for a second. And this is not to demonize single mothers or to say that every situation is terrible. But the data is overwhelming that if we could change just those conditions, we'd dramatically impact one of the first elements of free, which is the timing of your own family formation. And then, you know, I'll, I'll say the other three elements but that fundamentally would have a transformative impact on this whole idea of establishing the foundation of agency, not only within your generation, but the generation that is to follow your own children. So R is for religion, and I'm fairly certain the CDC is not create, uh, has not uh, there's no winnable battles that it <laughs> is trying to fight in this area. Probably for 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 we should be thankful for that. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I mean, I'm joking, but that's this is a harder nut to crack. We yeah. know about the we've talked about on this podcast with other guests the dramatically increasing um, uh, proportion of Americans who do not identify with any religion at all, especially younger yeah. people. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts here for both why religion is important to the agency yeah. and and what we can do about it? So if you think that, you know, me, me hitting the third rail as it relates to marriage and family, hey, why not throw religion in the mix? Hey, you're, you're deep now. You might as well keep going, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Um, there's a great line in, in there's a great line that Hamilton has um, after his son has been, um, unfortunately, uh, killed in a duel. Um, there are moments when you're in so deep. It's easier to just swim down, and then the Hamiltons move uptown. But it, 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 you just remind me of that. Of that. Of that <laughs> Good. It's the first time we've had anybody singing anything from Hamilton on this podcast. So. <laughs> I cross that barrier. Right. Well, Hamilton. You know, Hamilton is uh, is is throughout the book. You know, we have reference. Yes, I noticed. Yeah. Um. So religion. Okay. Well, you, you, what you just said is absolutely true. I mean, the, the, the fastest growing category amongst young people is the nuns, right? No religious affiliation. So not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. And it's depressing. But, but of those young people who are not, you know, nuns, who are actually associated with a, a religious um, faith, the numbers are quite dramatic, in terms of showing much lower levels of loneliness, much lower levels of depression, higher marriage rates, higher marriage stability rates. Um, you know, uh, uh, there's even some data that shows better income, better academic outcomes, and so there's jewel. There's there's some gold in here, and so my thing is 
rather than the narrative always being, because when you do hear stories about this, the general narrative you hear is that religiosity is on the decline, the fastest growing categories, it's young people who have no religious affiliation, ignoring the fact that there's still tens of millions of young people who are embracing religion, right? And getting massive benefit from it. So how do we counter this narrative by actually extolling the benefits of a faith-filled life? And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, none of of these things are a silver bullet for sure, but we at least have to have, we have to have the courage to counter these narratives, these debilitating narratives that basically says religion is, you know, is not for you. And, you know, what's even worse is we see things like anti-racism, you know, what John McWhorter calls, you know, sort of woke ideology or woke religion. Yes. So these sort of political ideologies now are becoming like religion, where they're, you know, you can be excommunicated for not adhering to every tenet. And it, it almost seems like, yeah, it's almost, it almost seems like young people are replacing going to church with, you know, marching towards the anti-racist drum. And, and I just think, again, if we can animate more young people who are already benefiting from a faith commitment, how do we elevate those stories? Like one of the things I'll be doing in the aftermath of writing this book, Agency, is actually creating a website called Agents of Agency, which will be all about celebrating young people who are following the success sequence in their own lives, who are embracing a certain faith. And it doesn't have to be Christianity or or, or any or Hindu, any other any particular religion, but who are just demonstrative of the benefits that can accrue to you if you pursue that course course in your own life. I'm going to guess it may not matter too much which religion when it comes to the outcomes we're talking about here, but I'm going to guess that embracing the woke religion won't confer the same. (laughs) I I may be wrong. I actually, I'm kind of curious. I would like to see what data says. Like it might actually be somewhat of a cure for loneliness if you're part of sort of a Kate, a couple of people trying to change the world. You know what you're, I mean, it's kind of a perverse thing, but I think that's actually probably one of the reasons it is so infectious. Like if you're on a college campus, you know, the, um, the Knight Foundation, uh, this is at the high school level, but it's very similar to what's happening in college. The Knight Foundation just released um, their annual survey of the First Amendment. Like how do high school students feel about, you know, express, expressing, um, you know, their First Amendment rights? They found that of high school students, only 19% of high school students felt comfortable expressing an opinion that differed from their teacher or from what they felt was the prevailing view of their fellow students, right? So if if everyone around you is woke, if everyone around you is saying that racism today is worse than ever, and if you're white, you're an oppressor, if you're black, you're oppressed, or wh- whatever, you know, what? then after a while you think, wow, bucking this, I'm going to be alone. But if I just fall in line, then I'm part of a community that I won't be challenged, I won't be ostracized. And again, the reason I run schools is to help young people know that they can do hard things, that there are pathways to success that they can embrace, that they can be independent thinkers and not feel that they're all all alone for for, for thinking independently. And yeah. Well, this gets us to your area of expertise in the next letter. Yes. The first E, education, and you have a lot of ideas here. Yes. I'm sure you have even more that are in the book because you've been doing this. You're spending much of your career uh, leading schools. Uh, what are one or two that you would pick out, like concrete ways forward? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the most basic one, the most basic, basic one is school choice, right? Yeah. So school, you know, the ability, um, you know, in the district where I'm um, – launching this uh, high school, uh, this international baccalaureate high school, in tw- of, the, of the high school students that started ninth grade in 2015, four years later, only 7% graduated from high school ready for college, meaning that they started ninth grade and dropped out, or they actually did earn their high school diploma, but still could not do math nor reading without remediation if they were to go to college. And in this district and in New York City, there's a cap 
on charter schools. So if you had a great idea to, to launch a brand new school, you couldn't do it. And that's, that's the kind of outrage that, when, so when people say school choice, that's what they're talking about. When a kid, you can't even get a shot. You've got to go to a school where, his, I mean, this has been for generations. These are the results that are being produced. And so we have to break the stranglehold. And middle and upper class kids across the country have the benefit of school choice, not by law, but because by money, by yeah. money right? They can move to a great neighborhood. They can, you know, they can go to a private school. Why don't we have the, the most vulnerable kids in our society have the most important element of getting up on the rung of success, which is having the ability to choose a great school. So that's, so that's one thing. The other thing, and this may seem, this is a little mercurial, but it's um, how we measure performance in our country around education in particular leads us down uh, a lot of wrong pathways. So for example, there's a lot of uh, discussion about like, closing the racial achievement gap because legitimately for the last 30, 40 years, there actually has been a gap in reading outcomes. If you look, there's almost like a steady state where white kids outperform black kids, if you look solely at race. But a couple of things that are really important to note, which is that there has never been a situation in which a majority of white students are reading at grade level. It's only, it's only something like 5%, according to the National Assessment for Educational Progress. So otherwise known as the nation's report card. So if you were to actually close that gap between black and white students, then all you will have achieved is universal mediocrity for everybody. <laughs> right. And, and maybe the plan. Yeah. Right. And, but, 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 and also more importantly, it's unlikely that systemic racism is the reason that the majority of white students are not reading at grade level. There are probably other factors, such as the lack of school choice, unstable families, you know, um, not, not enough access to high-quality curricula. And so you start to – but if you don't – but if your measurement systems are only looking at race alone versus any of these other factors, which are far more determinative, such as family structure, then your, 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 your theory of causality – you know, your theory of why are things working becomes very narrow, in this case, race-based, which then narrows your solution set around, well, what are the things we can do? You know, that's why you have anti-racist training as the, the, the solution, because, well, it must be racist teachers that, that have to explain why black kids are not doing well relative to white kids, for example. So I, I spend time in the book talking about if we were to actually expand our aperture around the prisms through which we look at student performance, we would find that things like family structure matter far more than matters of race or gender or even class. Mm -hmm. Although you'd be comfortable replacing race-based affirmative action with a uh, class-based affirmative I, action. Well, that is true. At, at the high school, at the college level in particular, um, you know, if you look at the elite schools that are accepting black students, the vast number, you know, through affirmative action, vast numbers of those black students are middle and upper class. They're recent immigrants. They're Nigerian kids. You know, they're, you know, like kids who are, you know, frankly, I mean, maybe we should step back and applaud what race-based affirmative action was able to achieve. But right now it is benefiting, not the kids that were originally, in my view, designed to benefit from something called affirmative action. And so, if we want to really level the playing field of opportunity, and this I think is going to happen, I think the Supreme Court is going to rule later this year that affirmative action based on race is, is unconstitutional and discriminatory based on a case where Harvard has clearly been discriminating against Asian students in favor of black students. So I think it's going to happen that race-based affirmative action is going to be declared dead. But if we replace that, with class-based, meaning that if you're low-income of any race and you're academically prepared, you would have a preference. I think most Americans would support that idea. Yeah, especially in an age of declining um, social mobility. Uh, you know, if, if one could see how there you could get a get people behind that, certainly. 
more yes. than what appears to be quite unconstitutional and race-based affirmative action. Yes. And so if now, if you have all of these things, if you have formed a strong family, if you have a strong faith commitment, if you've gotten a good education through having access to school choice, then that usually lays the groundwork for you to celebrate that last E, which is entrepreneurship. For you to have, it's almost like you, you can become a more informed risk taker, right? Because you know you have a foundation that you can fall back on. So entrepreneurship clearly includes work, you know, just all of the, all the benefits associated with work. But it also, it, it's this idea that you become a problem solver in your own life. It might mean starting a business and being able to do the analysis of what, you know, what the market looks like or, you know, what an opportunity looks like, but it also could be social entrepreneurship for how you solve problems. Like I consider myself a social entrepreneur because I, I, I like to see, I mean, I don't like to see problems. I like to solve problems, you know? <laughs> right. But I think the reason I got to this place is because I've, I don't know, I've been part of safe institutions that helped mold me, that, that helped craft my ability to take risks, informed risks, right? That in order to, to make big advancements, you've, you've got to like venture out a little bit in a way that, at, that others may not who haven't, who haven't benefited from these core institutions. Yeah, so it strikes me actually that one of the things, sorry to cut you off, but that, that, um, one of the things I've been meditating a lot on the last couple of years is sort of like a, the, a hyper risk aversion that seems to have sort of um, spread through our society and uh, among young people in particular, the most risk averse young people I've ever, <laughs> certainly more than my generation, the generation that preceded mine. Um, I wonder if that is, that's the opposite of what you're talking about with entrepreneurship, first of all, it seems to me. And I wonder if that kind of risk aversion is a consequence of a family breakdown and um, a declining religiosity and a certain kind of education. You think I'm on anything here? I think I absolutely, because you just, you don't feel like you can take a shot. You've all of in writes about this a lot, actually, that young people are, you know, they're just delaying, they're, they're delaying engaging in life. You look at the young number of young men who are idle and even relationships, dating, you know, now you can go online and Tinder and all these applications, even dating, there's no, there's, it's, it's, things are transactional, right? And so you're not getting into meaningful relationships. It's sort of like these sexual hookups and other, other sort of short term interventions. And the number of young men who are, you know, who are not working, not in relationships, but yet still having children at times, right? Um, and so you've got a whole community of young people who are just drifting. That's, that's a term that uh, Isabel Sawhill uses. And so, yes, I think not having these anchors of family, faith, strong education just makes you not grab life. That's what I want. I want young people to know that an epic life is within your grasp. And you don't have to do it alone. There are these institutions that can help you get there. We live in a uh, soul-sucking age, is what you've been telling us, uh, uh, Ian. But <laughs> but you've been giving us the the uh, antidotes to that. It, yes. And by the way, we do live in a soul-sucking age for some, but there are others who are in a soul-replenishing age. You know, you know, it's like there's I don't know if it's two Americas, but. There are people who are living life who figured this out. They don't need Ian Rowe to write a book that, you know, family, faith, education, entrepreneurship matter. They're living it and they're passing it on to their kids. What we as grownups who have this knowledge, we now have to have the courage to pass it on, to teach it in our schools, to help young people understand the power of family formation, to understand the benefits of a faith commitment. To, to giving them access to school choice and finally to giving them opportunities for entrepreneurship and all its definitions to have earned success. We know how to do this. Let's do it. That's, that is a perfect way to end this conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Ian Rowe, for, for joining us. That was amazing. Jeremy, thank you very much. Uh, the book is Agency. Uh, the four-point plan for all children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. 
Uh, Ian Rowe is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, is there any? By the way, we didn't. We got a. I've got a cache to this promise I made earlier. Um, is Vertex launched, or does it launch in the fall? Oh, August, August twenty second, twenty twenty two. A month yeah. from now. So yeah. if you're uh, interested, check that out. And uh, how can people follow you online, or, or if you want to be followed online? Oh, no, of know. course, of course. Um, well, I'm I'm on Twitter at uh, at Ian V Rowe, I A N V is in Vincent R O W E. Uh, VertexAcademies.org is the website for the um, International Baccalaureate High School that we're launching in August. Uh, Ian.row at AEI.org is my email at the American Enterprise Institute. Reach out. Awesome. If if you've got ideas for how to help more young people become agents of their own uplift, I want to share those and give a great platform to that. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeremy. Mm -hmm.